Ecclesiastes is going to be our 201 course. It's going to be, that was the prerequisite. Now we're into the next round where we're going to deal with the different things in life that you face that make you realize that when we read the book of Proverbs, they were principles and never promises. But the warning is, it's about to get dark for a month. This guy, he really takes the worst case scenarios, the worst case uh, you know, kind of experimentation of just the way life went and said, boy, your, your thought about that doesn't quite work the way you think. Now, to say that there are different ways for commentators to interpret the book of Ecclesiastes would be an understatement. There's a one question to ask, which is whether the main voice of the book is actually the author of the book. And probably it isn't. It's almost as though there's somebody who's been assembling things and kind of like when we used to have a more active prophecy mic in the church, there were a few moments that sometimes somebody would come up and share something and then afterwards you'd think, okay, we're going to tweak that a little bit. They've had a say, but we want to add a little bit so that what was just said wasn't thought of as like ultimate or, you know, just without clarifier. And the one who's kind of assembled everything in the book of Ecclesiastes kind of works that way. They start in chapter 1, verse 1, and then we don't hear them until all the way at the end of chapter 12. So that's the way that they function. But they give voice to someone who's called in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, in the ESV, the preacher. The words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, you might think that that preacher then, this voice that's going to be speaking, is Solomon. And maybe, maybe it is. One thing that we've heard, and we're going to hear more, is like the moment where the preacher says, I was the wisest of all the kings who sat in Jerusalem. If that's Solomon, that's just nothing but a slam on your dad, isn't it? Because there was only one other king in Jerusalem before Solomon. So it's really not that big of a boast to say, I was the greatest king ever because Saul wasn't in Jerusalem. David was the one who founded Jerusalem. And Solomon comes along and says, I'm the best ever in Jerusalem. It's like, mm, big deal. Yeah, you edged out your dad. Nice. There's, there's a lot of other hints and things, especially like we'll look at next week whenever the, the pleasures that the king kind of puts together uh, are, are there. It actually mirrors a different king more than it mirrors the story of Solomon. So more than likely, what you might consider this preacher or as, as the, the, the CSB or the NIV or even the message call him the, the teacher or even uh, what the message calls the quester, uh, a guy who's just putting forth stuff. Very well-placed bump.
Josiah is saying, if my voice can rise above the crowds, we'll get this done here. So let's see how it works out. Uh, the word that's actually translated as preacher or teacher is actually a word that's the noun of someone who calls people together. And the ones in scripture who did that, the verb, the word is uh, kohelet. The verb behind it is actually uh, the only ones who ever call people together. Thanks, Autumn. It's such a great job. Except for the, you know, where you this. <laughs> wasn't quite so great. So there's always a little bit of, uh, you know, an asterisk on some of the things. All right. <coughs> Don't worry, we'll edit that out of the final <laughs> version. The, uh, the, the word Kohelet, the preacher, teacher, this person is the noun word for a verb that's really only done in a few occasions. It, the kahal, or whatever the word is underneath it, basically means to gather people, to assemble people together. And so that's ultimately where we got the word ecclesiastes, right? We think of ecclesiastical means a church. A church is really just an assembly in the word. And so they've taken kind of the idea behind one who gathers people together and they... When they were, uh, you know, translating the book out, they gave it this name that kind of related to church. But what do we do when we come to church? We, we gather together. We assemble together. There's a few times in the Bible that people actually gathered or assembled people using this specific word. Aside from Moses, all of them were kings. And so it's almost as though this person who's assembled all this stuff together in the book is said, I'm going to give you what I've either found or, you know, kind of put together that kind of adopts Solomon's persona, if that, and was probably the work of somebody who was saying, I'm one of the kings in Jerusalem. Let me tell you a little bit. Because we would love, we know Solomon's story, right? We would love it if Solomon repented at the end of his life. We know that when he began taking over for David, he asked God for wisdom and God granted him wisdom, but God did not take away his, his, what seems to be insatiable lust or something that really kind of led him to get married and make these political alliances all over the place that led his heart after idols. When I taught this to sixth graders, I just used Solomon and said, oh, look, at the end of his days, he came back to the Lord because he wrote Ecclesiastes at the very end of it. And I'd love to be able to say that that's exactly what's probable. That's not probable. We don't really get any historical evidence that Solomon really repented. At the end of his days, his heart had run after idols, and it seems like that's where he died. So using Solomon as a character, using a generic king as a character, somebody has adopted this mentality of Kohelet, the preacher, the teacher, and wants to let us know what it would be like to have lived a life where you could experiment with everything to see what life under the sun could actually get you. And his conclusion comes in verse 2. Another tough word to translate. So the words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 
or to use the CSB, absolute futility, says the teacher, absolute futility, everything is futile. Or to use the NIV, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Or to use the message, smoke, nothing but smoke. That's what the quester says. There's nothing to anything. It's all smoke. Now, this is going to be an unusual moment for us. It's not often that I tell you that the message got it right, but they did. In this case, probably the closest word to that word there isn't so much futility or meaninglessness. It's the actual picture behind the Hebrew word, which is vapor or smoke. Something that appears substantial, but really doesn't have any characteristics that you can count on. Something you can see, but something that doesn't seem to be as real. Now, that's actually what the word vanity used to really mean. We take it to mean some sense of self-importance, right? A lady sits down at her vanity because she's so vain. It, that's not where we're going to be reading from the ESV. So that's just... So you understand, every time the word vanity comes up, he's not talking about some sort of narcissistic self-importance. That's not what the word really gets at. It gets at what's behind it is the, we'll call them the vapors and the vanities of life. The things that look substantial, but when you really press up against them, seem like, why was I chasing after this? Because at the end of the day, I've got a handful on nothing. It seemed like something I wanted to run after, that's the more historical use of the word vanity. And the ESV is just kind of using that, that nature of it. But the vanities and the vapors of life, real wisdom, the book of Ecclesiastes tells us, and particularly one and two, real wisdom has to deal with the vapors and vanities of life. In particular, what we're going to see in these two chapters is the vanities and vapors of time and death. And Barb and I spoke a little bit that we were going to be approaching death, having just celebrated Steve's life last Sunday. So this is, this is a, a topic for us, and we'll, we'll, it's, it's a little bit sensitive right now for us as a church, but we'll, we'll wade into it by thinking about time. In particular, it's not just time, it is the pretense of permanence, the way that time works for us by pretending to always be permanent. Let's listen to, uh, to what Judy read for us. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. First thing he tells about, the, about time is it just continues on. Time marches on forever. He uses the idea of generations to be able to picture that in verse 4. And he's talking about it because he says, for our time under the sun, all this work that we do, it's really frustrating, isn't it? I just mowed my lawn yesterday before the rain came, which was great because now I'll never need to mow it again for the rest of the summer. Or oddly enough, that's exactly the way that I feel sometimes. I, I feel like, wow, this has been the perfect mowing. Nothing, nothing ever needs to be done again because I've just finished the work permanently. 
But more than just relating to the fact that that's absolutely ludicrous, what is verse 3 really kind of getting at? Why are people baking in the sun doing their work? Because we're not in the shade of the garden anymore, are we? Right in the very beginning at verse 3, the, the preacher is telling us we live outside the garden. Why? Because there was a time when Eve saw that there was something that would, she thought, make her wise. And so she went her own path to go get it. It's not an unusual way that the Bible describes sin. The quest for wisdom on our own is in some ways pictured most accurately by the book of Judges, isn't it? What was going on in the days of the judges? There was no king in the land of Israel. Everybody was wise in their own eyes or did what was right in their own eyes. Various translations get at the same idea. The problem of Eden persists. And if only a king in Israel would have ended all that, but it didn't. This problem persists to this day. We're just Adam's and Eve's who have tried to find our own way through this world, and it's left us baking under the sun, doing our work, and time relentlessly marches on. We can't. I wondered if Bill was going to be amening this message a little bit. <laughs> but Bill, not only does time march on forever in terms of generations coming and going, but the sun and the moon and everything just keeps going. The sun rises, verse 5, and the sun goes down. It hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. It's not just that my kids will replace me, should that be the patterns of our lives and death. But the Earth just continues on in this circular way. The sun goes through its cycle every single day. It hastens back to the place where it rises. Why? Only to do it again. The wind, using his kind of smoke-like, you feel something, but you can't really grasp onto it metaphor. The wind blows from south to north, around and around, verse 6. That circuit is endless because time marches on forever which could be okay if my time under the sun, my time in this place could be remembered forever. Think of how many cultures try to establish something like this. We don't want our lives to be forgotten. And so graveyards, right? Some rock that will mark me being here. Or the day of the dead in, in Hispanic culture, right? The idea that if we just remember people, right? Coco, yeah? We gotta keep the picture up, why? So that they don't fade out of memory forever because we're very aware that time just marches on. And then secondly, time leaves us all unfulfilled. Listen to the way he describes it using the earth again. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. 
All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye has never seen enough. It's never satisfied with seeing. The ear has never heard enough. It is never filled with hearing. So if you're looking at the earth, where is all that water coming from and where is it all going? You ever stood at a river and just wondered that? There's a lot of water moving through there. It's all flowing and it's going from somewhere to somewhere. When is it going to be done? When will the, the source of it ever dry up? And when will, you know, the ocean just go, excuse me, I've just had enough. I cannot take any more streams. Thank you very much. Never has that happened. The earth is always unfulfilled. And not only is the earth always unfulfilled, we are unfulfilled because time marches on forever and time leaves us all unfulfilled. This is the way just time works. And it makes Everything familiar. I am preaching the last message you will ever need to hear on this text. I just want to declare that. This, the best sermon on Ecclesiastes. What will happen when we're done, we will take this script. I will give it to a publisher. They will contact the other publishers and say, stop the presses. We've had the best one ever. Yeah, thank you, Bill. <laughs> but just like my lawn will need to be mowed again, this passage will need to be preached again because time makes everything familiar. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there a sermon of which it has been said? See, this is new. Not only will it not be remembered. I was just at this conference and I was preaching on the prodigal, the parable of the prodigal son. I was talking to some folks about the fact that Tim Keller wrote this great book on that, on that parable. And a few folks were like, Tim Keller, I think I've heard of him. Did he, did he just die? It was all they knew about him is that he just died. The volumes he had written, the work he had done, the church he had pastored and the legacy he left behind, what they knew is that he had come up in the news as a guy that died. I was like, well, then you should start by reading this book because <laughs> it's a really good book. In fact, you're going to hear most of what I said kind of coming from that book in so many ways. But why? Because Tim Keller wrote the final book Nope. He wrote A1. Because not only is it familiar, it has already been in the ages before us. It wasn't new. Beyond that, his work is going to be forgotten. Because that's the last thing time does. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Now, let me pause you for just a second. Here's what's going to happen for the next four weeks. You are going to say at moments like this, something that the Bible doesn't say. This is what happens in reading this book. You're going to want to go, well, then, so that means this. And we have to be cautious at those moments. Again, from the, the podcast that I listened to, 
one of the best things that they, that I, I just love this picture. Uh, the, the one guy's teaching, the other guy's kind of reflecting on it. He said, you know, as you're talking about the book of Ecclesiastes, it sort of feels like what he's going to do is he's going to lead us up to this cliff. And he's going to say, look, the vast expanse of time, the presence of death, the futility of life. And we're going to be like, whoa. Well, I guess I got to jump now. And just before we jump, he's going to go, okay, no, no, I just need you to see it. I just need you to see it. Wisdom means seeing this, not going there. So what we have to be careful of, especially as we've only read 11 verses out of this first chapter, is that we don't jump off the cliff whenever we see the expanse. Here's one little take on the expanse of time and our insignificance before it. We are unfulfilled, everything's familiar, and will be forgotten. No, 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 it's okay. You just have to see it in order to live wisely at the top of the cliff. If you don't know this is here, you're going to make a whole mess of mistakes with the book of Proverbs. But knowing this is here, it sobers us a little, doesn't it? Now, the good news is this is the darkest things get. <laughs> I just lied to you terribly. <laughs> Listen to the way that Blaise Pascal is going to make it a little bit darker, in fact. We do not rest satisfied with the present. We anticipate that future as too slow in coming, as if in order to hasten its course or re recall the past to, top, to stop its too rapid flight. So imprudent are we that we dream of those times which are no more and thoughtlessly overlook that which alone exists, the present. Why? For the present is generally painful to us. We conceal it from our sight because it troubles us. And if it be delightful to us, we regret to see it pass away. We try to sustain it by the future and think of rearranging matters which are not in our power for a time which we have no certainty of reaching. Isn't that an interesting perspective on the past and the future and the way that we live in the present as a, re as a result of it? We cling to the past or we plan for the future and we forget that this moment we have right now is the gift. If you're thinking of Kung Fu Panda, <laughs> it's right. You remember Uguay? Now, I'll let you watch it. <laughs> then you can get there. It'll get you thinking a little bit more. Problem is, this isn't the only other thing that he talks about. We're going to bounce to chapter 2 and then come back to verse 12. So we're in chapter 1 right now. I want to jump ahead for a second to see the way that he talks about another thing that kind of, you know, expands this sense of the cliff that we're right on the edge of. And it's not just time, but it's the reality of death. And more than just the reality of death, it's the offense of death's indifference. Listen to the way he starts to talk about it in verse 12 of chapter 2. He says, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? 
Only what has already been done. What does he introduce right in the very beginning? The king will not be the last king ever. Quick survey. The name Don DeVries. When is the last time that name came to your mind? Just think about it. Now, for some of you, it may have been more recent. For some of you, you may be saying, I don't know who Don DeVries is, which is odd. But just understand this. That's the way Darren Lander will be within our church. That's the way Mike Chen will be within our church. There will come a day, should Trinity Church exist, when us won't be Trinity Church. Why? Because death comes for the great. <laughs> we the great ones, we in this moment who are defining what Trinity Church is, ah, oh, hail us. What? what does he say here? The man who comes after the king. What does that mean? The king ain't the end. Remember where we saw this in the, in the Old Testament? Book of Daniel? The king has a dream, and he's the head of gold. But what does the dream reveal? You're a gold head, but after you come other kingdoms. Babylon is great, but there will be others that come after you. What does he do next? Makes a statue, and what's all of it made of? Gold. And it probably looks like him. And what does he say? Everybody must bow down to it. Bow down to the image of me. God revealed you're the beginning of something, and Nebuchadnezzar said, no, I am all that there is. I am the end of everything that matters. And death says, nah, there is a man that comes after the king. But it's not just that death comes for the great in the terms of who's the king. It's death comes for the great in terms of who's wise. Verse 13, then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly as there is more gain in light than in darkness. That, that's a good thing. It's better to flip the lights on if you don't want to stumble into stuff whenever you get into the room. So the wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks around in darkness. That's a great way to live life. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. What's he referring to? He's referring to death. The king dies, the wise die. That's the way it is. And when death arrives, both for the great in terms of power and the great in terms of knowledge, death then vaporizes what you think you had accomplished. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also a vapor, vanity. It's, a, it's, a, it's an enigma. It's an absurdity of life. You can live your life so well. What did we who gathered last Sunday afternoon do? We honored the way that Steve had lived his life. And if there are aspects of our lives that should grant us immortality because of how well we've done, we could have pointed to a lot of things that Steve had done and say, well, that man seems like could have been worthy of it. I mean, like, you know, we read the story of Enoch and that sounds pretty good, right? He walked with God and God took him and he was no more. 
Well, that, that sounds pretty nice, especially in light of the way that everything else in Enoch's story goes, right? He lived, he got to this age, he had a kid when he was that age, and then that kid grew up and he died. And then that guy grew up and he lived to this age and he had a kid when he was this age and then he died. Live, die, live, die. It doesn't matter how great you are. It doesn't matter how wise you are because what you think you're accomplishing in your wise life gets vaporized by death, according to the preacher. Secondly, it also vaporizes our legacy. Verse 16, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. I told you it got a little darker, right? We're just staring at the edge, leaning over and going, whoa. So don't jump, but look. This is what death does. It arrives no matter how you've lived. And when it arrives, because of the fact that time leaves us unfulfilled and time leaves us forgotten, there's a certain sense that what we do won't create that massive monument that we think everybody is going to build their lives around. Books come and they go. Sermons come and they go. Lives come and they go. Legacies go. Because death vaporizes my legacy. So jumping back to chapter one, let's just think about what he's trying to help us understand, all right? And he kind of pictures it in two ways. In, we're going to say it this way, in light of time and death, I lauded if you want to do something with the actual like kind of phrase, nothing's ever finished. Well, that's disheartening a little, isn't it? Here's his description of it. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Again, let's just think of it biblically. Is he right that life outside the garden is not as good as it would have been inside the garden? Absolutely. Is there unhappiness? Are there thorns? Is there the heat of the sun? Absolutely. This is an unhappy happy business that we are busy with. Verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is a vanity, a vapor, a striving after wind. And here's what he says. Nothing ever gets done. It's never fixed. It's never finished. It's never final. What is crooked cannot be finally straightened. It's that old phone cord. Remember those? Back when receivers were attached to phones, which were attached to walls, there was a little spiral cord that used to just kind of get there. And every now and then, when you'd pick it up and you'd put it down, there's a certain satisfaction because you'd pick it back up, especially if you have a little OCD in you, you just loved the way it was coiled nicely all the way. Bob is relating to this, I believe, in a strange way. And then through no fault of our own, we'd pick it up, put it down, pick it up, put it down, pick it up, put it down, and there's a glitch. Something has happened where it doesn't go like this. Now it goes like that, and then it continues. And you're like, oh, no. 
So I don't know if you guys ever did this, but I would have many phone conversations where I had no idea what the other person's talking about because they're just yak, 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 and I'm like, mm, no idea what in the world. Then I got two of them because I've been going the wrong way with this thing. Or if you're a sound guy and people have wrapped your cords the wrong way, and so then you'd finally get them and they've been wrapped the wrong way, you're trying to get it back and you're flipping the whole thing around so the cord just wraps really nicely, you know, that's never gonna happen. First point, in light of time and death, the crooked remains crooked and never gets straightened. Oh, that should bug us. Oh, that should bug us that the unrighteous things in this world are never fully resolved because of what we get to do in this life. Do we ever put the final nail in the coffin of sin and evil. We don't. We fight against those twisted phone cords. And maybe we make it better, and sometimes maybe we make it a little bit worse, but we are fighting nonetheless, but it never gets fixed. The crooked cannot be made straight, and what's lacking cannot be counted. It's like sometimes we're adding up using nothing but negative numbers. How well is that going to go? Well, it seems like you're doing all this and it's the proverbial one step forward, two steps back. Why? Because in light of time and in light of death, your jobs that you've been assigned will never get perfectly done. That's deep. But more than that, not only is nothing ever finished, no one is ever satisfied. This is where moms of young parents would have probably been like, amen. No laundry was ever done. That's a task. But no kid is ever finally happy. Josiah never got the last Lego set he ever needed. (laughs) Every stupid one of them comes with a catalog. (laughs) Isn't that just a sick joke to parents? You give them something that they're like, (laughs) you know what else we got? And I know that they keep doing that because they're inside every Milwaukee tool I've ever bought. Hey, we've got a lot of other stuff in this whole M18 world. Ooh, you're right, you do. And you've upgraded the batteries now, too. Josiah's playing with Legos, and I'm over in the garage playing with sawdust or whatever. But the preacher says it this way. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. Dad. Probably, right? This is further down the line. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I looked at life through both ends. This is doing it well. That's doing it. And it's going to make you crazy. I studied all of it. And I perceived that this was but a striving after wind. Why? Whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 man. Come on, man. I'm basing my life on what I get to know, on how I get to improve myself. I am going to become the most articulate. I'm going to become the most knowledgeable. I'm going to become the the expert in this field. Great. Verse 18, here's the summary. That won't be satisfying either. Because in much wisdom is much vexation. 
And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is where the word sophomore comes from. You, know, you remember the, the, the etymology of that word? Sophomore basically means wise fool. You ever meet a sophomore? They studied for their freshman year, and now they've come back ready to tell you what you don't know. Contrast that with somebody who's finally gotten their master's degree over a topic, and they're like, oh, my word. My field is so complex. I barely feel like I've scratched the surface of what I know. Why? Because the more you know, the more you realize what you don't know and what you still need to know and the limits of knowing and mastering some area of expertise. You've become the world's living expert on this and you're like, wait, I got a lot of study left. And that's vexing. And that's sad. Because nothing's ever finished and no one's ever satisfied. Here's his conclusion at the end of 17. And this is why I say don't jump, but listen to where he goes. We're going back to chapter two, right? I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. See, time and death can open dangerous doorways to despair. They can lead us to the edge, and if you've ever been there, you just feel like you've got to go. It's like in verse 17. He's like, man, I just, I just hate life on this, this plane here because I see this cliff there, and I just feel like, well, what's the point? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just going. Or he says in chapter 7, verse 15, in my vain life, I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. I thought, verse 4, or chapter 4, I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. This dude is falling into the precipice, isn't he? He is he's just on his way into the void. He's saying if you've been alive, it's better to have been dead. And frankly, when we consider the whole sum of all of it, it's just better not to have been born in the first place. Now, those sound like words we're going to hear in a later book that we'll study in about a month. But they also might echo just where you've been. Death has touched our church, not just in terms of our members, but we've all experienced folks that have been in this level of despair. And it is hard to know what wisdom looks like in terms of how to get there, how to understand what does it feel like if, if dying looks more attractive than living. Now, I'll just say this. If this is a struggle that you've had, or if this is a struggle that you are currently aware of somebody who's having, please don't shy away from the topic. I think we're going to see reasons for living but there are moments that the folks that are considering this reality, it's just helpful to remember they are touching a point of wisdom that the Bible wants us to see. Life outside the garden, life baking in the sun, life with the thorns and the thistles of work and with the vanities and vapors of life is discouraging. It's just it ought to lead us to a different conclusion. And this is the hard this is a hard reality of life, is that suffering 
makes us want to find an alternative sometimes. We don't have to shy away from this, but we do want to take the, the concept soberly. And we want to actively and wisely think about what is it that we ought to do. We're going to be in this book for three, week, three more weeks, okay? Some of it is going to be peering, and some of it is going to be finding a way to make sure that we step back, respect the guardrails a little bit, and understand, okay, there are no promises and there are no guarantees, but what is it that we should do? I think there are three things that we can come away with. The first is this. We should accept wisdom's present benefits, right? We, we heard this in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I saw that there's more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there's more gain in light than in darkness. A wise person has eyes in his head. The fool walks in darkness. It's better to flip the lights on in life. It is better to deal with our words and with our wealth and with our work. It's better to take our parenting. It's better to consider the ant, as Mike had us think about. It's better to take our approach to life and have the lights flipped on. So on one hand, what we don't want to do in coming into this book and walking out from it is just say, oh, well, forget Proverbs. It's not like there's any benefit to that because we're all just going to die. So let's just give up or let's just live however because none of it really matters. That's, that is not the conclusion for us to come to, right? We should accept wisdom's present benefits. And the word present there is intentional because what we often do is we assume that there are future promises for wisdom that actually Proverbs never makes. It's a book of principles. Generally, do it this way. Generally, that's the way it happens. But in light of these glitches, in light of these exceptions, in light of these asterisks that are there, let's remember there are present benefits, but they're not always future promises or guarantees. So we have to live in that tension. Parent this way, you'll probably see some, some benefits in your kids. Are you guaranteed to see things go a certain way? Absolutely not. That can be the heartache of parenting. We're going to look next Sunday at wisdom, not just in the microscope of what he's doing right now and tested, but wisdom under the sun. What is it that he wants us to see about how all the stuff that the world offers us doesn't quite work out? And he's going to be right, but this point will still stand. Second thing that I think we need to do is to embrace the lessons of time and death. The first that we just generally know from Scripture is that it is a good thing for us to live with our mortality in mind. Moses' words in Psalms teach us to number our days that we might have a heart of wisdom. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those death calendars. It's a little disheartening. But it takes factors of your life, and it basically lists out every day that it anticipates you're going to be alive. It's on one big piece of paper. And every day, you can just check another one off. And at any point in time, you can look and see how many have been checked off and how many, according to just the law of averages, an actuarial would say, this is probably how long you've got. That is wise. It's not a guarantee. But it is wise for us to number our days and remember that time is not to be spent looking into the past nor just looking into the future but it's to be lived. 
Each day that we have, whether it's easy or hard, is to be lived. Every experience that God has given to us is a gift. Jumanji 2? Another one. These aren't quite Lord of the Rings quotes here. There's a little bit of wisdom. This one comes from Danny DeVito. The very beginning of the movie, all he's doing is complaining about how bad it is to get old. Ah, just horrible to get old, horrible to get old. The very end, after they go through everything in the movie, they come out, he's talking to his grandson, and he says, you know, getting old, I know, Grandpa, it stinks. No, he says, it's a gift. Number our days. Secondly, though, listen to the ant. Listen to the end. Remember Mike's message. In light of what is coming and the fact that we do have to prepare, it is wise for us to make sure that we use time wisely, that we prepare for future weakness, that we think about where we're going to be and that we try to make some sacrifices today. In that sense, as has been said, think about your future self and you know, try to take care of them a little bit until we're all going to be. And so there is Wisdom in, one, remembering our mortality. Secondly, in preparing for the future. And then thirdly, I think one of the other things that we can learn by way of a, a, a benefit, a lesson from time and death, is to keep to the old roads. Particularly with the way that technology has worked, we often think that what's new is always better. And because we hear that all the time, because that's just the direction life moves us, sometimes we need to learn to plant our feet firmly and intentionally look back to the past. Not in nostalgia and always wishing for the good old days, because the good old days, just by the way nostalgia works, probably weren't as good as we thought about them anyway. But wisdom that is tested over time, paths that have been worn down over time are usually the safest way to go. And there is wisdom in keeping to these old roads. But lastly, the last thing for us to do is to remember the passage then that we also read in the very beginning. In Colossae, Laodicea, Paul said in Colossians chapter 2, I have got such a burden for you guys. He knew the struggles. He knew the popular ways of thinking in the day. He knew exactly what was going on. And he was saying to them, I want you to be wise. I want all the treasures of wisdom to be given to you. And so what is this book mainly about? How to eat right? How to make sure you get enough rest? No. His book's about Jesus. Why? Because his words in chapter 2 are that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. That's the thing we're going to have to do as we read Proverbs, as we read Ecclesiastes, and as we read Job. Is remember, these are not the final record on any topic. And when it comes to the brevity of life and the certainty of death, this is certainly not the only word on what happens to death, is it? And one of the old roads is actually what leads us there. Because the third thing we have to do is to seek wisdom from the master over time and death. And one of the old paths actually comes from the book of Hosea. A prophet speaking to the nation of Israel where he says this. This is the Lord's word through Hosea. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol, the grave. I shall redeem them from death. 
Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? That's written way out into the past. That is a prophet looking out into the future and still declaring that the God he knows has power over the grave. And yet he has no idea what he's clinging to or how it's going to be foretold. He has no idea that when the future finally arrives, that this passage would then be fulfilled by God coming to earth, arriving as a human being, subjecting himself to the way that time affects humans, where we actually like change over time. You, you, you understand this? The son of God had never changed over time until he voluntarily took up residence in a body that would evolve, that would change, that would grow, that would mature, whatever word you want. He's not timeless anymore. He's not static anymore. He is now subject to growing, learning, progressing, maturing. Would Hosea have known any of that was going to happen? Absolutely not. Would he have known that then the purpose of that maturing life was to arrive to the point that he would live sinlessly and die as a substitute for us? Absolutely not. And yet then that the one enemy faced since the garden, the day you eat it, you will surely die, will actually be defeated by the arrival of Jesus on the earth so that he could die for us and then rise as the first of us. Hosea had no idea what he was talking about. But Paul uses that word later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and says, let me tell you how that promise was going to be fulfilled. It was going to be fulfilled in one who arrived in time, who suffered death, and then who conquered the grave so that we could look out into the future and not feel like this. We could follow the old path and find there's actually a bridge across the precipice that leads to hope. It's that bridge we're going to have to find each week as we encounter the next topic. But it's going to be a privilege to do that with you. So let's pray.